0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rin Vieth, and I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Shanice Stepakoff here to discuss her new book, Testimony, Found Poems from the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Shanice Stepakoff is a clinical psychologist, human rights advocates, and a writer. Shani additionally holds an MFA from the New School and is currently completing her PhD at the University of Rhode Island. Um, Additionally, just a really quick note before we get going that like many works of human rights, we will be acknowledging the existence and describing a a bit uh, violent acts like rape and torture uh, in case that's a concern for you. Um, But with all of that, thank you so much for coming on the show, Shani. Thank you for inviting me. So, to start, um, this is a very typical uh, New Books Network question. What brought you to this project in the first place?
2: Yes. Well, it was unexpected and unplanned in the first place. I was actually living in Sierra Leone, um, and I had lived in Guinea for a year before that, working with Sierra Leonean and Liberian refugees for an NGO called the Center for Victims of Torture. And then I was working as a psychologist for the War Crimes Tribunal in Sierra Leone, which is called the Special Court for Sierra Leone. And I was hearing and reading, because I also um, read written testimonies and heard a lot of oral testimonies, And I was struggling in many ways with my own vicarious trauma. Uh, The impact of hearing about atrocities over and over again, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. Um, And one night, um, late at night, everyone else was gone. I was alone in this sprawling court compound. It's almost like a whole village in and of itself in Freetown. I just spontaneously started to shape one of the testimonies into line breaks and form. And I, I didn't realize it consciously at the time, but I think I was kind of unconsciously driven to give this overwhelming testimony, some type of shape and form as a way to kind of contain it. And that became the first poem. And then from there I began to, uh, recognize that this process of distillation could actually bring greater attention to what was actually being said, because there was a lot of legalese. There was a lot of interjections from lawyers and judges. There was a lot of bureaucratic things, and sometimes you could practically lose the voice of the witness. So I thought by creating poetic, um, expressions you know distillations of the actual testimony which i refer to as found poems um it could bring uh, a closer and a more intense attention to what was actually being testified about yeah
0: so this book is really as as you said you know set against the backdrop of um of the the Sierra Leone War Crimes Tribunal, right? Um, and as this really forms the the heart of this book, um, for those who might be unfamiliar with this particular tribunal, um, can you give just a sort of short summary of um, of I, I guess context that uh, that might be helpful for listeners?
2: Thank you. Yes, I'll talk about it sh- briefly here. But for anyone who does go on to obtain the book. Um, i do give quite a detailed introduction in the book hopefully not too um didactic i, I try to still express it in in, in a decent prose but i do provide quite a bit of context so um there was an 11 year war in sierra leone um and it 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 went from 1990 to 2001 pretty much um and or, or actually, 1991 to 2002, yeah, and it was a war that had a lot of atrocities, as as many wars do. And after the war was over, um, there is the question of what a society does to transition into a peacetime. A uh, government a peacetime way of life uh and so forth and, and that whole field which a lot of people are not that familiar with because it's still fairly new that whole field is referred to as transitional justice so the branch of human rights that deals with war crimes tribunals p- um truth commissions uh things like that is referred to as transitional justice because you're helping a society transition from war to peace and and societies have different ways of doing that Um, Of course, in South Africa, after apartheid, was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So in Sierra Leone, they had both. They had a truth commission um, and they had a UN-backed war crimes tribunal. Um, The tribunal was what's called a hybrid tribunal. So it was um, a joint effort by the UN and the international community and the post-war Sierra Leonean government. So both of those entities Joined together to create this tribunal, and uh, they carried out a series of trials. Um, all the trials were held in Freetown, except the very last one, which was the most well-known and and sometimes confused people because the most well-known one was former Liberian president Charles Taylor, who was tried by the Special Court for Sierra Leone, but in the Hague they used. Uh, the International Criminal Court in The Hague as a venue. Uh, so some people think he was tried by the ICC, but but he wasn't. He was tried by the special court, but for security reasons, because people were afraid that he would be uh, someone would be bribed and he would be released from prison or something. So he was tried by the special court in The Hague, but all the other trials were held in Freetown. And and uh, does that address the question you were asking in terms of context? Absolutely, yes. Okay, um, okay. so. This
0: book is different um, from most books on the New Books Network, I, I would say, and definitely different from most books on the Human Rights Channel because it's a work of poetry, um, which is part of why I was just so excited to see this um, come into my, to my inbox. And so I'm, I'm curious, why do you think poetry is a good framework for discussing or engaging with these big questions of, of human rights? or of of trauma as well
2: yes thank you well i think poetry is basically a distillation uh any kind of poetry involves usually involves some type of distillation where you're trying to say the most with the fewest words or with the most potent words um I think poetry has a way of staying in one's memory. You know, it's easy to sort of forget a lot of long, um, complex nonfiction books that one might read about the history of Sierra Leone or about the war. Um, But poetry tends to reach deeper and touch people in a deeper place uh, that involves both cognition and emotion. Uh, the cognitive part, as I was saying, is you tend to retain it in memory more fully. And then the emotional part is just that if it's a well-crafted poem, it does tend to um, reach the person at an emotional level, not only at a, at a cognitive level. So, and that that's kind of from the perspective of the reader or listener. Um, from the perspective of the writer, um, as I was saying a few minutes ago, I think shaping uh, a traumatic account or narrative into a poem can be a way of of sort of coping with it and containing it. Um, because if you are writing about trauma, it can quickly become overwhelming. And one thing that I was absolutely fascinated by, and, and people might be skeptical, but this is really the truth. I worked on these poems, for several years, um, and then I was in the late stages of you know, compiling them. And I discovered that Charles Resnikoff had written a book um, of testimonies from the Nuremberg Tribunal after the Holocaust using the same technique, basically the same technique, uh, condensing, distilling, shaping, line breaks, and so forth. And and I had not, at least not that I was aware of, I had not come across his work. So I really started to ask myself, um, how is it that he and I were writing in completely different contexts, different eras, different situations, and yet we kind of happened upon the same method of making poems. And I, it made me think that maybe there's something about atrocity that just leaves you sort of dumbstruck. It's just very, very hard to come up with words. You, you feel speechless when you encounter some of these um, realities. and And maybe working with pre-existing language is sort of a natural way of giving voice and giving expression because otherwise you might just be, be silent. And Reznikov waited, I think it was like 20 years. Uh, I I write about it a little in the, in the introduction. Um, I think he waited, I'm not sure how many years he waited, but he waited a long time, 30, 30 years. So Reznikov waited until 30 years after the Holocaust to make those poems. So I do think there's a process of sort of, um, Figuring out a way to give words to what feels unutterable—that's
0: a perfect segue, actually, to my my next question. Um, I was really struck, and this is not just the um, lover of of Russian poetry and in, in me, but I was really struck by the quotes that you use by Osip Mandelstam at the beginning of your book. I have forgotten the word that I wanted to say and my thoughts unembodied, return to the realm of shadows. And you you invert this um, to, and and, and you write, I have found the word that I wanted to say and my thoughts now embodied is reclaimed from the realm of the shadows or realm of shadows. How how did this help shape your practice of found poetry? And I'm thinking particularly in sitting with these transcripts uh, from the tribunals.
2: Thank you. That's a great question, and I'm really glad you noticed that quote because it's it's an important quote. Well, the original quote from Mandelstam, I first became familiar with because I'm also um, a registered poetry therapist, uh, which is a field a lot of people don't know about, uh, but it's existed just as long as the other creative arts therapies, music therapy, dance therapy, psychodrama. drama um, and in that field, um, we work a lot with pre-existing poems. So in other words, you you try to find a poem that kind of speaks to the client's experience. And then they, when they see it, they have kind of a flash of recognition and resonance and it can be very healing for them. So that's where I originally encountered the original quote. Um, I have forgotten the word I wanted to say, my thought unembodied returned to the realm of shadows because it was the idea that um sometimes a person needs to see their feeling and their experience represented in some type of form, linguistic form or some other artistic form. It could be art, uh, visual art, and so forth. Um, The converse, which you shared, you know, my thought now embodied is reclaimed from the realm of shadows. That's what it felt like to me because of the way these voices and these testimonies were getting buried uh buried metaphorically and literally buried metaphorically as i was saying in the midst of a lot of legal jargon a lot of very long you know seven eight hour days in court a lot of lawyers arguing and that sort of thing uh but also buried physically because once the tribunal was over i mean hardly anyone is reading these texts Testimonies, unless they're doing legal research or something, but the general public know. So they're basically in file cabinets or in digital files. Um, so I thought that by embodying some of these voices and experiences uh, and testimonies in a book form, um, and in, well, first in the form of poems and then eventually in a book, it would kind of bring them forth um, in a way that wasn't likely to happen otherwise, yeah.
0: So also, um, unlike many I've spoke with on this channel, um, you have a background in clinical psychology, and so I'm curious how this past training informs your work, um, and also, you know, feel free to speak a little bit to your own involvement, um, in this particular tribunal.
2: Yeah, Thank you. Well, um, how it informed my work on the poems, um, is something I have to probably give a little more thought to. I mean, it 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 was through my work as a psychologist that I became aware of the war in Sierra Leone and of the kinds of experiences people had had in Sierra Leone, and I was exposed to hundreds. There there were over three hundred witnesses who gave testimony in these trials, there was a large number of witnesses. So including insider witnesses, which are people who have acknowledged that they participated in atrocities, but for various reasons have decided to testify about what they did, um, which is a very powerful form of testimony because what happens sometimes when a victim testifies is that our desire to not believe that this could really happen kicks in and you kind of want to say to yourself no they're they maybe they imagine this maybe they're exaggerating but when you have the testimony from the insider who says yes this is what we did and they describe in detail and they and they they were a perpetrator I mean you you can't go into denial really about that so anyway but that's a separate issue but yes I was exposed to hundreds of testimonies and transcripts and I think What I tried to do was choose, you know, eight or nine representative ones that would touch upon different aspects of the war as almost archetypal or prototypical aspects that were known to have happened in the war. So a a child soldier uh, or what we refer to as a child ex-combatant. Uh, a, a or former child combatant, uh, a, a rape survivor who who also had a fistula, which was a common uh, medical impact of of particularly harsh multiple rapes um, in war. Is 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 the 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 bladder develops a hole. Sometimes the bladder and the rectum and urine and sometimes feces leak out constantly, twenty four seven, which is a devastating injury, not only physically, but socially, because uh, there's an odor and it also signals to people that you were raped. And so, so, you know, um, there, so that was a fairly common experience in the war. Um, you know, uh, a person who was permanently disfigured or blinded. So I tried to choose experiences that would touch upon common things that happen in the war, but also pay attention to the voice. Because some witnesses testified with greater imagery and more powerful language than others. I remember one really strong moment for me, which is in the book, was when a particular witness said, he was in the middle of his testimony sharing his story, and he just stopped and said, "Um, right now my heart is like when you pour acid on a piece of cloth. And it really struck me. I mean, it was such a strong metaphor. It was such a strong metaphor. And that is kind of what found poetry is, when someone in their natural speaking expresses something that has a property of poetry, uh, whether in terms of images, words, or or both. And when he said that, it, it struck me. Um, and there were things like that. And I was very influenced by a book by Rilke called The Voices, and in that book Rilke tried to capture about 10 different types of human experience of people who were marginalized or disempowered so Rilke and, and he uses the preface song of song meaning poem and so Rilke had song of the orphan song of the widow song of the beggar and i tried to sort of use his um types his prototypes as a model but also to make it specific to the Sierra Leonean war.
0: So this is another question about um, the the methodologies you used and the the practice of creating this incredibly powerful work. Um, so when testimony was was given to the tribunal it was to the best of my knowledge largely an oral practice. And I'm curious how you thought about this act of affixing spoken text um, to the page, because it felt to me like um, you were almost uh, translating um, this this oral testimony into a, a poetic form. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Well, yes, the testimonies were oral. Uh, because they were, you know, in a courtroom with a panel of three judges and they were, they people didn't just get up and tell their story as a narrative, as as happens in a truth commission. That's one of the differences, but they were being questioned by lawyers, whether defense lawyer or prosecution lawyer, and they would answer the question. So the testimonies were within the framework of question and answer, and it was fairly structured. Um, but transcripts. It it was a pretty advanced tribunal in terms of resources. I mean, they had the resources of the UN, so there was a whole department of the court that would um, record and create transcripts. So there were written transcripts of all of the testimonies, but they were typically very, very long. You know, you could have a 30, 40, 100, 200 page transcript that could then be condensed into a a poem. Um, In terms of your question about I may have lost the the gist of your question it was something about translating from the oral to the written right yeah I I was always almost always in making these poems I was almost always working with the written transcript um so I I read all of the transcripts which took you know several years because it's a lot uh but I read all the transcripts and from those I as I said I chose you know, about eight or nine that um, I thought I wanted to kind of go into more deeply and and really work with more deeply. And then I um, worked with what was already there on the page. And I used literary devices and poetic devices, which is basically giving it a title, creating line breaks, uh, using repetition, that was a technique I I had read Gertrude Stein's uh, three Lives just shortly before I started working on these. and she uses repetition a lot in that book and she uses it very creatively and powerfully. And repetition is also used a lot in West African culture. It's used in storytelling and other kinds of oral, expression. Um, So I was very intrigued by the technique of repetition, and especially using repetition to call attention to certain things. Um, Rhythm, I paid a lot of attention to rhythmicity. Um, I paid a lot of attention to assonance and alliteration. You know, you could put words together in a way that uh, had a more powerful literary and poetic impact by just using these techniques of assonance alliteration rhythm line breaks as i was saying stanza stanza structure so instead of a long prose trial transcript you've got stanzas so you've got stanzas you've chosen where to put space there's one whole poem that's just white space Um, that's meant to let us kind of take in the absence, you know, the people who are not here to testify because they were killed. Uh, and that, that is just a blank page. I hope people who buy the book don't think it was like a misprinting or something and ask for their, their money back or whatever, but, but yeah. So using space, using stensic structure, using line breaks, using these kind of literary devices, um, is kind of what made it possible to to transform a child transcript into a a found poem.
0: So I I have another question about this rendering of of text onto the page, um, and uh, not um you know not not repetition or, or that sort of uh you know structural things like like stanzas, but punctuation, particularly the three dot ellipsis you use. And I was, I can I can feel myself tearing up about it because I was just so moved and so struck by this explicit effort to render emotion onto the page. And I would be curious to hear a bit more how you how you came to this because, um, or if you want to, you know, speak a little bit to you know what that meant. Um, because it's not just uh, an ellipsis of a pause, but it really felt like an interruption to me. Um and a really I
2: don't, deeply, deeply affecting way. I'm so appreciative that you read that carefully, Rin. Uh, No one else has asked me about that, but I actually had a pretty intense, not exactly a battle, but a bit of a struggle with the... uh, during the publication process, because I really wanted that ellipsis with the right spacing between the three dots and exactly the right, you know, thing, and, and I, I'm so glad that you noticed that because it, it it was a significant um, punctuation decision. Um, I mention, I think I refer to it briefly. Um, yeah, I I refer to it briefly. In a note on the text. So um what happened is there were times during a testimony where because I, I should mention that almost all of these testimonies were also videotaped. And the videotapes, um, I don't know if they're still accessible, but they were accessible on a website of the special court. So you could um you could just click on a link and actually see and hear, the, sometimes see, sometimes just hear, the actual testimony. Not not all of them, but but many of them. So, um, and I was also present. I mean, I was present in at the court for almost three years. So, sometimes a witness would be testifying, and all of a sudden they would just burst into tears. It just became overwhelming. Maybe they were telling their narrative, even in a fairly mechanical way uh or they were telling it not in a mechanical way but their emotion was contained and then all of a sudden whatever the trigger was whatever erupted in them or or whatever was touched in them they kind of erupted in tears and Usually when that happened, because the the judges don't like to see someone crying, that's a whole other issue. I actually think if you always call a break as soon as someone starts to cry, you actually miss the truth of their full experience and their grief. I, I, I think it would be meaningful to, if the person wants to and hasn't asked for a break, to be there for a few minutes while they cry. I don't think that's inhumane. Because how do you know the full extent of their grief and loss and sorrow if the moment they started to cry, you say, I, I call on you know, a one hour recess. But I mean, I think it was generally done out of a sense of compassion. The, the assumption was that if a witness has started to cry, they probably want a break. And, and that was often true, not always, but that was often true. So the ellipsis usually signified that at that moment, the witness had started to cry. Um, and then they took usually like a one hour recess that was uh ordered by the judges and they w- there was a waiting room, a sort of comfortable break room where they could kind of get a glass of water, refresh themselves, have a counselor, a local you know Sierra Leone counselor sit with them a bit, and then they could be ready to to come back so the ellipsis should be understood usually as a, as a place where um, the witness just couldn't continue at that moment, couldn't continue speaking. Occasionally I use the ellipsis also because I preferred to let something be left to the reader's imagination than to have to spell everything out. And that happens in the um, poem about the rape survivor. Um, It's quite obvious that she was raped, but I don't, go into graphic detail depicting the actual moment of the rape. so it 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 leads the poem leads up to the point where the perpetrator um you know sort of ordered her to lie down and i didn't want to get into all the horrible graphic depiction of what happened next so i use the ellipsis and then i went on from there so occasionally it was used in that way to leave it to the reader's imagination instead of you know always going into graphic detail but most of the time the ellipsis represented crying yeah um thank you so much for that question
1: this episode is brought to you by shopify <coughs> do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: So I was also thinking about time while I was reading this. Um, and to, to give a, a more grounded example um, from the poem, the child soldier, it ends with the lines. Uh, Since the day I was, that I was captured when I was nine years old, I've never seen my parents or my sisters. Since that separation, I've never seen them. They tried to find my mother and my father, but they did not succeed. Now I'm learning a trade. And so I would love to hear more about how you approached bringing past and present together in this work, because to me, that feels like a really central issue for, you know, war crimes tribunals and for, you know, for, for justice, you know, after such a, a violent rupture. Um, and it just came across so beautifully in this, this book of sort of what came before what's happening in that moment and then what the future might hold.
2: Yeah, well, I'm really glad you pointed to that particular passage. Um, And I'm going to respond to your question. But I also think it provides an opportunity to illustrate what I was saying a couple minutes ago that if you look at that last two stanzas, they tried to find my mother and my father, but they did not succeed. Now I'm learning a trade. So that's not by accident that you've got sort of the off rhyme or the near rhyme. You've got tried, succeed, and trade. And those sounds, trying to use sound in that way was an important part of constructing the poems. Um, I also, in the passage you chose to mention just now, um, want to mention that the book was also in formed by sort of a modernist sensibility in the sense of not having a resolution. If you look at the end of most of the poems, the last line, the last few lines, the last stanza, pretty much every poem ends in a deliberately unresolved way because that is true to life. Uh, People don't necessarily wrap everything up in a ribbon and have everything okay because they've come and testified in a tribunal. They still have struggles they still have difficulties they still have all kinds of challenges so um that that is sort of captured in the stanzas that you you read so here he never did find his parents again and he's learning a trade but we don't really know what what will happen or how he will cope so in answer to your question about time um you know there's a sort of double awareness that I have in regard to the situation in Sierra Leone. On the one hand, people still visualize it as though it's still actively at war. You know, they're afraid to go there. They picture it as, as, you know, horrific things still happening. And, you know, the war has been over for more than 20 years now. I mean, there have been some issues with political tensions and even some, some political violence and even some deaths. But if you compare it to the Middle East, Uh, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think the Israelis and Palestinians have ever had 22 years of relative peace, you know, without a a full scale war. Uh, So, so in some ways, it's an achievement that there is not, there's not been another war, and they have had elections. And some of the elections have been you know rated as fairly free and fair I mean there are still issues I don't want to be Pollyannish but relatively speaking I think they've done pretty well in the post-war period of the last 20 20, 21 years Um, on the other hand as I was saying a few minutes ago the issues that the book touches upon are still unresolved and war could happen again as often does, you know, uh, it's no guarantee just because a poem was written about someone or they gave a testimony, there's no guarantee that, um, that they're going to really be okay. So we're left kind of um, aware of what people have gone through, hopefully more aware than one would be if they hadn't read the book. Um, But knowing that um, uh, people's lives continue to in- involve difficulties and and struggle. Um, so, yeah, and I, one thing that's been meaningful to me, I've had Sierra Leoneans tell me because it's actually fairly controversial with some of the um, issues and debates going on nowadays in the literary community about representation. Um, it's it, it can be considered somewhat controversial that I as a you know, quote unquote outsider. Although I I was pretty deeply involved in, with the country and and culture. Um, I also have a daughter I adopted from Sierra Leone and raised, and we've been back several times and so forth. But but still, it's fairly controversial uh, that I, as a you know, outsider. Uh, wrote this book and it's been really meaningful to me that I've had many Sierra Leoneans tell me that I was able to articulate things, express things, tell certain stories, give voice to certain experiences that none of the Sierra Leonean writers or poets have done. The, The book has a resource list and I try to raise uh, attention and and advocate and give give uh, referrals for you know a bunch of Sierra Leonean and uh, writers and poets and I do want to highlight their work but I have had people tell me that um, in this book there are things that that had not been written about from the insiders within the the culture so that that has been really meaningful to me to hear and and the book was positively. Review, there are blurbs from, you know, several um, West African, including Sierra Leonean authors, there's an introduction by a Sierra Leonean writer, so that I feel good about that, because that doesn't always happen.
0: So I'm in, in reading, um, it sounds, it sounds strange, I guess, to say, um, you know, I, I read a book, and I thought about gaps, uh, and silences, um, but I, I, I was thinking about the power of words, um, alongside you know silences and gaps, and it's something that uh, you touch on in in your introduction uh, to the poems of you know struggling to to find the words and how you know the, the struggle to find the words after trauma, including the vicarious trauma of of witnessing the the testimonies and doing the support work that you did um, throughout this tribunal. Um, to to briefly read um, the ends of another poem, uh, the rape survivor. It, it ends with "I'm still not well." From the time these rebels raped me, I'm still ill, but I can answer questions and I can speak. I'm still not well, but I can answer questions and I can speak. And so I'm curious how you thought about the capacity to testify um, and you know put words to or speak to you know these these horrible things that happened alongside you know the the trauma of of the civil war that happened.
2: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Well, um, I've been very influenced by a trauma theorist who works out of Boston Harvard Medical School called Judith Herman. And she wrote a classic book that was published in 1992 called Trauma and Recovery. Um, And in that book, she talks about the idea that one of the paradoxes of trauma is that it simultaneously stimulates a desire to speak and an inability to speak. So you've got both of those contradictory impulses or or, or contradictory realities uh, coexisting. There's a deep need to speak and very often an inability to speak. So um, here... I, I'm so sorry. I think I lost the, the, the main point of your question. Could you just restate it so I can pro- properly focus on that Absolutely. part from, from the rape survivors poem? Yeah. So she, she says, and this is an example where I used repetition. I thought it was important to repeat that last phrase. And and again, it, it speaks to that unresolved aspect. She says, I'm still not well from the time these rebels raped me. I'm still ill. And I can, an- but I can answer questions and I can speak. I'm still not well, but I can answer questions and I can speak. So that is what she can do. That is what she still has. She has her voice, she has her ability to tell her story, she has her ability to contribute to the collective knowledge of the war, she has the ability to make a contribution to the historical record um that was really important um some of some of the witnesses spoke about things that otherwise wouldn't have entered the historical record because they weren't really being acknowledged like like the Sierra Leonean wars frequently the RUF uh, the revolutionary united front that was referred to as quote unquote the rebels they are usually viewed as the perpetrators but there were horrific atrocities also committed by the faction that was pro-government that was fighting to restore the um elected government that the rebels were you know were overturning and that was called the cdf the civil defense force and they committed atrocities too but it wasn't acknowledged because it wasn't politically popular uh so witnesses using their voice speaking about their experience telling what they had been through that helped to create a more accurate and more complete historical record so here she is she is basically disabled she's socially rejected she's got a fistula she's struggling she's having a really hard time but there are there is something she can do she can answer questions and she can speak and she did so um does that respond to your question? I I, I, I may have missed ab- part of your question. No,
0: ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, that actually um links well with uh the next question that I I had um, you know, and thinking about you know the the gaps and sort of what comes in the midst of this trauma and as, um, and in that that pivotal moment of you know trying to, um, you know trying to shift away from continuing violence um, in, in the tribunal setting, I was thinking about how individuals bear witness to atrocity to shocking human rights abuses, um, whether it is in that moment or whether it is bearing witness to the testimony of, of what happened. And so, I'm curious as to how or if you thought about the idea of witnessing the testimony of the Sierra Leonean war crimes um, as you were putting this this book together. If if you thought about you know this this idea of witnessing more broadly, or if you thought of yourself perhaps as as a witness of of sorts.
2: Yeah, it's it's really an interesting question. I I gave a lot of thought to the epigraph. There's an epigraph for the book that is extremely important to me. um, That's from Coleridge, from The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And it goes like this. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns. Until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns. Until my ghastly tale is told this heart within me burns. Now there was a parallel process that went on because that epigraph refers to the witnesses themselves. They, this was, they, they were, this was voluntary testimony. Nobody at the special court for Sierra Leone was subpoenaed. They, they, or maybe one or two government officials, but in general, almost all of the 300 plus witnesses chose to testify. So, the you know not everybody wants to do that some people want to try to forget and move on if they can um some people do have a desire and a need to tell their story whether for their own relief or to expose and denounce what happened or or to contribute to the larger society um So this epigraph refers to the witnesses need to tell their tale, their story, but also it referred to me as the writer. And that's why I chose it as the epigraph because I had now heard all these stories. So I become a witness to the witnesses. I have borne witness to the witnesses experience through hearing, through listening, through reading, um, And now I'm holding all of that. So I've got all these stories now in my awareness. I'm aware of these various things that happened, really horrific things that happened. I mean, any war has violence. We all know that. But there were extremely horrific things that happened in this war. So now I'm holding that in my awareness. And I wanted to bring that forth on the page in a way that others could... um, become aware of it so in a way it was also this until my ghastly tale is told this heart within me burns in a way it becomes partly the 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 not i mean i certainly can't claim that i had the direct experience i obviously didn't suffer what these individuals suffered or go through what they went through obviously but But in a way, when you hear a story and you're holding that in your awareness, um, it doesn't completely become your story because it's still that other person's story. But it becomes something that you have to wrestle with. You have to grapple with. You know, what do I do with this? Do I try to forget about it? Do I put it in a file cabinet and, and just not think about it but it's there do i burn it burn the pages that it's written on or do i bring it forth in some way so i i really wanted to try to bring it forth in the form of these poems and and ultimately this book um, but i talk a little bit in the introduction i had my first exposure to human rights abuses had been when i was fresh out of college quite young and and fairly naive um and I went to South Africa on a a special internship program. I ended up getting involved with an anti-apartheid center near Johannesburg, where I stayed for about five months. And I did a big project on on torture victims and ex-detainees, and I collected a lot of testimonies from there. And then I got back, 1987, I got back to the States. It was still in the worst part of apartheid. I didn't do anything with those I those sat in a file cabinet for decades and decades I mean even even now I have never really published those or done anything with them other than refer to them briefly in the introduction to this book so that would be a, an example of what one does when one has borne witness to the witness but doesn't feel able to do anything more about that and I tried to push it out of my mind because what was happening under apartheid was also really horrific. Um, but this time I was older, I was more mature. I'd had a long career doing human rights related work and so forth. So this time I felt more able to figure out a way to bring some of this material forth.
0: So um, I am delighted to say that we, we can end this, this interview with um, a reading of of an excerpt um and i would i would love to to hear you read this this excerpt um i believe it's from the the poem the amputee's mother um but i would also love and I'm, I'm sure listeners would love as well to hear more about the significance of this um this poem to you um perhaps why you why you chose it or what really struck you about it
2: okay so this is from the first poem in the book um as Rin as you were just saying um the amputee's mother and um it's a long poem but i'll just read a brief part of it um so the context in this part of the poem that i'm about to read is that um both the speaker and her child have had their arm deliberately amputated um, by the rebels and they are trying to survive by walking with the missing arms to get to some sort of village or or help. So that's what's happening at this point in the poem. Um, I was so tired. Then I looked for a road that would reach the farm road where my husband had gone to work, but my mate who had escaped had already gone to the farm and told my husband. So my husband came, he started crying. My mother also came and started crying My friend, Fina Dabo, my mother and my husband, they strapped the child. My mother took some water, washed my body of the blood, the blood that had been on my body. They strapped me on their back and strapped the child on their back together with me and took us to the farm. When we reached the farm, we slept there. We sought advice from one old man because there was no medicine. The old man said, In Cono, when they chop off people's hands, we use tobacco leaf to tie it round the wounded place. In cono when they chop off people's hands, we use tobacco leaf. At that time, my husband had tobacco leaves, so he brought them out and tied them round my wound. And is that enough of an excerpt or did you need more? That that's sufficient. Okay. That's wonderful. Okay. Yeah, so in answer to your question um when I'd heard the actual testimony before I made the poem I had heard that phrase in Kona when they chop off people's hands we use tobacco leaf and it was embedded in a larger testimonial narrative at the time and things just kind of went on and I did not go on mentally and emotionally the process was going on and I was kind of arrested and just grappling with that emotionally and cognitively like what is happening here is this what we've come to that it's become so normal to chop off someone's arm that we're talking about well in this location when they chop off someone's arm we use this type of verb and here when they when they chop off someone's arm here we use a tobacco leaf and 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 almost forgetting the enormity and the horror of what are we actually saying and and that got me thinking in a broader way about war and what happens in war because i think what happens in war is with language and emotion and cognition we we tend to become numb we tend to become desensitized and and almost not to notice what we're hearing and even what we're saying so I really wanted to repeat that phrase. It was one of those examples of using Gertrude Stein's technique of repetition, because let's pause for a minute. Let's hear what's being said. Sometimes you have to repeat or you have to pause or you have to do something. Maybe it won't be made into a poem. Maybe it'll be made into theater or film or, or, or a painting, but Or music, you know, but we've got to do something to really uh, overcome this tendency toward numbness and desensitization so we can keep our ability to respond um, alive.
0: I want to thank you so much for your time today. And thank you so much for speaking with me about testimony. Um, Before we close, would you like to let listeners know about other projects you might be working on?
2: Thank you so much. Um, well, one thing I do want to mention, um, the book was published by Bucknell University Press um, as part of a um, a series uh, called the Griot Series, which are books that focus on um, people from the African diaspora and, and also from Africa itself and African-American experience. So um, the, the publisher took a leap of faith on this book. I was a first-time author, um it's a subject that might have seemed obscure to some people uh there was an incredible poet a beautiful person named Carmen Gillespie who chose to um take the first steps toward accepting the book and then and then later it went to other levels but she passed away during the process that the book was um being accepted and then and then it was picked up by Um, the editor at Bucknell, uh, Suzanne Giot. But um, so in terms of your question, I do want to, you know, this is a nonprofit university press. They're all struggling and having a hard time. So I do want to encourage people to, if they can, not for my sake, but, you know, to support the publisher for having been willing to to publish this book. But anyway, um, in my current projects, um, right now I actually would like to be doing more to publicize the testimony book because at the time it was brought forth um at the end toward the end of 2021 i was in the middle of my phd studies in english at the university of rhode island i was really busy i was also working full-time i was teaching i was still doing clinical practice and i didn't have time to really promote the book in the way i would have liked Um, And then later in the spring of 2022, the book was chosen by the Independent Book Publishers Association for um, first prize in the poetry category, which is called the Benjamin Franklin Gold Award. But still, I would like to kind of go around to law schools, universities, human rights organizations, and, and try to give talks like this and give readings and bring more more attention to it um, in in the months going forward. Cause I, I don't want the book to just disappear or go out of print or something. Not again, not for my sake, but for the sake of bringing these voices, bringing these voices forth and keeping them in people's consciousness.
0: Well, thank you again for your time. Thanks for, for sharing this, this book with me and with listeners and have a great rest of your day.
2: Thank you so much. It's, Really been a good experience being interviewed by you, Ren, and I I appreciate this opportunity.